Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We should probably change the name of this show. Rather than calling it Keenon, it should be called Patrick on. <laughs> Bethann Patrick has been on the show all the time. She is my <laughs> ears and eyes and brain on the publishing world, and she's back, uh, been away for a couple of weeks in Europe. But Bethann never seems to go away. She knows everything about the publishing business. And today we're going to talk uh, exciting nonfiction books for fall final quarter of 2023 bethann is that right it is and uh delighted to be back andrew as always so let's let's begin with a wonderfully titled book about a very creepy subject a book called creep accusations and confessions by miriam gerber wonderful uh, cover astonishing cover and it looks like a a very relevant book tell tell me about miriam gerber it is a very relevant book, Andrew. Miriam Gerba is a terrific Latina writer uh, from the West Coast. And her memoir, Mean, came out a few years ago. Creep is sort of a companion volume to Mean. It talks about a lot of the trauma that she's been through especially with men in her life. And a lot of people know Miriam Gerber. Men, men, men have a, women have a problem with men? I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> I know, never heard that before. But it's really true that uh, Miriam Gerber has had more trouble with men than I think many women have. And she came to some public acknowledgement or notoriety because she had written a really amazing essay criticizing American Dirt, the Janine Cummings um, book that came out a few years ago, and which was marketed really poorly. And it was about a uh, mother and son who came to the United States through the, um, you know, sort of quote unquote train from Mexico to America. And Gerba said, look, Janine Cummings is not Latina. She's not Mexican. What does she know about this? And also why was this held up the way it was? But her real writing in Mean and in Creep is incredibly funny. Um, she is such a, an incisive wit. And she also has a very self-protective impulse. So in many of the essays in this collection, I would say that she seems a little removed. But then when she talks about her ex-boyfriend, um, who routinely, this is a quote from her, routinely raped, beat, and tortured me, not because I'm stupid, not because I'm a masochist, and not because I'm insane. He did it because I'm a woman. And so she looks at creeps from that boyfriend to other men in her life, to William S. Burroughs, to the Mexican president who committed murder when he was an adolescent, to all sorts of figures in history who have been creeps. And she has a mind like a steel trap. And you noted, Andrew, the beautiful, incredible cover. It's really quite startling. Is it she, her? 
Yeah, that is her. And well, it is an astonishing face and a beautiful It actress. is an astonishing face. She is truly someone, I think, who is going to write some very important books. In yeah, the this, this looks like a winner. The only thing I sometimes find with, I have to admit, some of these books of essays is mm -hmm. they always hold up. There's one or two good essays. Are these essays written for a book or are these just a collection of essays? I would say there, there. I would say there might be one or two in this collection that aren't as strong as the others, but that's only because the others are so strong. This is a collection that does stand up to scrutiny as essays, and it's something that I think many, many people, women, yes, but I think men as well, will actually look to as a way of entering the discourse that we haven't entered, which is about how people who are immigrants integrate into our society and what our society's patriarchal impulses do to them. But there's a tremendous vitality about uh, his, his female, it seems female Hispanic writers mm -hmm. Fiction and of fiction. I've had absolutely many, many extremely impressive uh, writers and thinkers on the show. So this is not certainly the first or the last. Is there anything distinctive, anything that she's saying that hasn't been said before on this subject, which of course so much has been said about? I think what she says so distinctively is that we are being targeted, um, women and femmes, because of our gender, our sexuality, our biological um, construction, and that it is really, uh, she puts it in words that uh, people in the 2020s can understand. This kind of creepiness, this kind of oppression is about power. It is not about seduction or desire or anything to do with sexual intimacy. And I don't know if that's new, Andrew, but she is saying it in a very new way that I think people can hear uh, in, in distinctly right now. I'm not going to try to add too many books to this, but I would add uh, Anna Fanda's Wifedom Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life, which is Color. a book about <laughs> the creepiness of George Orwell, which is astonishing. Absolutely. I'm a big fan. And I think even Anne Fundus remains a big fan of Orwell's political thinking. But some of the stuff that comes out on it, she, she was on the show and she was talking about patriarchy. And sometimes I find that a little boring and repetitive. But actually, having read the book, I read it on the plane coming back from Europe yesterday. It, it's an, an incredibly impressive book. And um, what she writes about Orwell's wife being written out, Eileen O'Shaughnessy being written out of his life, out of his work, is astonishing. Uh, I won't give away the whole narrative, but uh, it's it's an, it's it it might be wifedom might be a good compliment to creep. I think it is, and uh, I actually have you read it, wife? I have, and like you, I am a huge fan. Uh, I was a huge fan of Stasiland by Anna Funder, and I think Wifedom 
is so interesting because of its um, multi-genre uh, component. You know, this isn't just her looking at Eileen O'Shaughnessy uh, Orwell, it's her looking at her own life as well and how she has accepted things that she probably shouldn't have accepted. And this is where Gerba also comes in because she's saying, look at these things that we are acculturated to saying, yes, this is what I want. This is the kind of relationship I want. This is the kind of life that I want. And maybe it's time to take a look um, more closely at what we want ourselves as women and femmes, but also to take a look at what we are being shown that is, I don't know, um, some, I, I don't want to call it normal or normative, but I want to say the things that we're being shown that we're supposed to want, you know. Yeah, um, uh, and in Wifedom, Fonda uh, talks about one instant when she was growing up when she was with her family and the friend of the family was with her and he put his arm on her leg and no one even bothered to raise an eyebrow. So interesting stuff. Uh, certainly, yeah. uh, I'm going to try and get uh, creep. Uh, not creep, but Miriam Gerber on the show. She looks. Uh, where's she based? Do you know anything about her? She's in. Um, she, yeah, she's. I believe she's in Los Angeles, but somewhere close. She there. looks a bit LA. Yeah. Yes, she's very yeah. LA, and she is. She's fantastic, and like I said, she's also extremely smart and funny. She is not. This is not a book that is heavy-handed. Even though she talks about you know rape and beatings and and creeps, it is a book where she uses all of her intellect to say this isn't right but you know we also have to laugh at these people look at them you know uh they're they're trying so hard for this little share of power and it's it's really kind of comical well one book that i or one author that we are planning to have on the show is included yes. on your list uh, dylan penning growth before the movement the Hidden History of Black Civil Rights, as if everything hasn't been written about black civil rights or anything well, right in America. And yet we have a new history here, which is saying something different. We do, because Penning Roth is a, a Berkeley law and history professor. With, and I love that. I remember um, back uh, when I was in graduate school, I had a friend who was in law school, but also doing a master's in history. And this is a very powerful combination, as Penning Roth shows in this book, because he is able not just to demonstrate the actual history of how Black Americans set the stage for the civil rights movement, but he is also able to show that there were legal precedents that these brilliant people set in place. For example, and this is, oh, this is what I love, um, Andrew, about this book. Many communities that were Black or primarily Black knew that they couldn't get equal rights under the law. So they would set up associations, you know, sort of neighborhood, different kinds of associations. And those associations as such often had more legal power than some of their individual members would have had. And so these were black people saying, 
okay, we are going to be free and we are going to be seen as citizens one of these days. How can we make this happen? What kind of progress can we make? And that's not the only example in the book, but he really shows that contrary to many people's beliefs, just because pre-civil rights, there wasn't a huge movement, that doesn't mean that Black Americans didn't understand the law. Right. And I think what it does more than anything else is it gives agency back to Black Americans. Absolutely. The idea that they were saved by white activists of one kind or another is... um, Yeah, no. It's... um, Something that's challenged. So I'm looking forward to have Penning Groth on the show. Speaking of America, um, Mm -hmm. we have a book called, I'm I'm sure that this title has been used before, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15 by Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellinson. Uh, Depressing history, but nonetheless important. What does American Gun tell us? Well, it is depressing, but nevertheless important. And so um, McWhorter and Ellenson are Wall Street Journal reporters. Uh, This is a very carefully researched and reported book. And they start, of course, with um, Eugene Stoner, a machinist in Long Beach, California in the 50s, who wanted to make what he he wanted to make what he called an American Kalashnikov, an American version of that very light and versatile. uh, Appropriately named uh, fellow. That's right. That's right. And uh, he was doing this, at least so he said, was he was doing this to help soldiers move more quickly on the battlefield so that they could be safer. And it's true that an infantryman on the battlefield who has a lighter, easier to use um, weapon is going to be able to move more quickly. But unfortunately, as we all know, the AR-15, it's, you know, the M-16 version did get put to use in the United States military, but the AR-15 has become a terrible tool. And it's not just about weaponry. This is about the arguments that we go through in the United States about technology and freedom too. So I'm thinking of AI, we're having similar debates today about whether AI should or shouldn't be allowed, whether it's good or bad. That's right. That's right. And, you know, one of the things, at least this is what I was always taught, is that uh, a gun is a tool, you know, that uh, it, it, it does not have to be used to hurt another person. Right. It's and, like we say guns don't kill you. People do. That's right. And, and AR-15s uh, have wreaked a lot of havoc, but there is no reason why we have to have them on the open market. I mean, that is my subjective view, but I think these two authors show all of the reasons that people are arguing about the market right now for guns and weaponry. And it it is a book that 
will not necessarily change anyone's mind on either side, but it is a book that shows both sides and gives all of the information. So right. it, it sounds more like a, a sort of a, a history of gun culture rather than of a single piece of technology. In a, in a way, it is, although they focus on that single piece. They really, you know, they don't go way outside and talk about, you know, handguns or other kinds of rifles or, you know, anything like that. They really do focus on the AR-15 and the situations it's been involved in. So it is enlightening. Well, I'll have to get them on the show, too. Um, I think so. I think so. Pat. Bahannon, Eve, how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. The idea, I guess, that human evolution is driven by the female body. Is that possible? Well, that's what Bohannon says. And what I find really fascinating about this is, first of all, it's long overdue. You know, how is it that no one has written this kind of history before? She has a PhD in narrative uh, and in cognition. So Bohannon is uniquely placed to talk about the narrative of the female body. Now, I don't know if she's right. Um, I won't argue that she is completely correct, but I will argue that she shows us through the stories that human beings have told each other over thousands and thousands of years that female bodies are quite important to the way we not just talk about ourselves as humans, but also the way we talk about how humans have changed. And for example, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. You know, she talks about how women were probably the first humans to actually use tools. And that's because women um, were given their build and biology and physicality usually preparing food. So even before there was hunting and gathering, you know, women were trying to put something together, you know, trying to put a meal on together on the, the stone in the cave, if you will. And so all of these things need to take into account all of the things we study, whether it's neurobiology, medicine, you know, evolution, we have to think about how half of our world population has breasts and vaginas and different kinds of fat and, and all of these things. Um, so it's a quirky, voicey piece of science writing. It's not stuffy. It's a lot of fun. You won't necessarily agree with everything that Bohannon has to say, but you will be entertained and you will possibly think about things a little differently yeah i'm bound to be controversial given the trans issue given yeah. the debates about whether men and women are biologically different more or less advanced so that that sounds another interesting one i'm going to take a short break uh, bethann we are with uh we are patrick on with bethann patrick talking about upcoming major new works of nonfiction that will be out in the fall and take a short break remind everyone of our sponsor and then we'll be back in two seconds with my friend Bethann Patrick
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can find out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests, including Bethan Patrick, will get uh, an annual complimentary subscription to, uh, to uh, Liberties. It's published in Washington, D.C., where Bethan is. My favorite title, uh, Bethan, of, uh, of, of this show is How to Say Babylon, a memoir. Tell me about the title. What, is, how is, what does it refer to? It uh, refers to uh, Sophia Sinclair, the author's learning how to talk about the place that she is not supposed to go, Babylon, the United States, the place where everything happens. And, uh, you know, her father was a Rastafarian and we all know about Rastafarians. We all know about reggae. We all know about Bob and Ziggy Marley. But uh, in, unfortunately, anything that involves spirituality, faith, and adhering to a set of, you know, guidelines or rules or dogma can also turn bad for some people. And Sophia Sinclair's father, unfortunately, was a tortured soul who beat Sophia and her siblings and her mother. As she says, beatings became a fact of life, like dirt and air, and they arrived without warning and without reason. There was no pattern except the chaos of my father's interior life. And so he would constantly break the rules, you know, that he said they had to follow, whether it was rules about diet, rules about clothing, rules about media consumption. And she would, Sophia would see this. And she finally thought, why? Why am I allowing this man to rule my life? This shouldn't be. And so one of the critics whose reviews about the book that I read said, and this is so beautiful that this is memoir that goes beyond catharsis. It's memoir as liberation. This is the Jamaica that is not beaches and rum punch. This is the Jamaica that is about a hard scrabble life and how to escape. And Sinclair is one of those writers whose elegance of syntax seems to stem I mean, of course, it stems from a deep and dark place, but it also seems effortless. It uh, is not something, this is not a book where you feel, oh, you know, she just was stamping out each word with so much trouble. Well, it has a, a West Indian fluency. Shall we it say. does. It really does. It's, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful book. It's one of my favorite of this last quarter of the year. Definitely. From the West Indies to the Middle East, to Jerusalem. To the West Bank, yeah. Today in the life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Sadly, these kinds of books 
are more and more necessary and relevant. Tell me about this book. So Nathan Thrall was the director of the Arab-Israeli Project at the International Writers uh, Crisis Group, excuse me, Crisis Group. And so he really understands this part of the world and he understands what's at stake. Now, what makes this book powerful and relevant is that rather than trying to say, gosh, there's a conflict between Arabs and Israelis, it's really tough. Instead, he goes in through the lens of a man named Abed Salama. And uh, Salama was a phone company worker, a Palestinian, and he was also a political activist. And in February 2012, there was a day when his five-year-old son, Malid, was killed in a traffic accident near Jerusalem that was... Um, you know, uh, it was deliberate. It was it was deliberate um, bombing, and there are many many interviews that thrall. So, so hold on. So this was a, a Palestinian boy. Yes, yes, a Palestinian run over by or, or shot. Um, he was uh, he was killed in a in this traffic accident. Um, he was on a bus and he was killed uh, on the bus. Um, Who by? I'm sorry. Who killed him? Uh, well, uh, it was definitely uh, Israeli um, driven and uh, it, it is just a very, very terrible, I mean, a, a terrible thing that happened and there are so many different perspectives on it and Thrall is not trying to lay the blame on either side, but what he is trying to say is it's not just a matter of Arab versus Israeli. It's a matter of societies that do not have all the pieces in place to properly address an accident like this. So, you know, there's bureaucratic problems with transit permits and ID. Um, they don't have the best schools in Palestine. So kids are being bused to other schools. And uh, if they didn't have to be bused, it would be less likely that they'd be subject to this kind of, of terrorism. Um, the roots of the tragedy lie not just in what actually happens, but they also lie in what the conflict, which has been going on for so long, has done to infrastructure. Yeah, it sounds like Edward Said meets Kafka. It's it's <laughs> you know what? That is not a bad. Non-fiction This sounds, if not semi-fictional, certainly requiring the skills of a fiction writer to put this kind of stuff together. Because it's so well, hard to write about this conflict in a different original way. But it does sound, again, miserable but important. It is, and uh, you know, Andrew, what you just said, I think, is is very important. Thrall goes in with narrative. This is all true. None of it is fictionalized. It is carefully, carefully recorded. He talks to people who were on the scene the day the bus accident happened. He talks to people who, um, you know, are parts of the, the schools and the nearby businesses. He, you know, he talks to everyone and he uses that to put together together 
something that is individual so that we will have the compassion and sympathy that we need to in order to actually care about what's going on. Well, from American guns, brutal fathers, murders on Palestinian buses, I think we need to cheer ourselves up yes. a little bit, Bethan. And this book looks wonderful. Critical hits, writers playing video games. Tell us about this book. This by is Carmen Mar Maria Machado and J. Robert Lennon. Well, first of all, I just want to say Carmen Maria Machado and J. Robert Lennon are both incredible authors in their own rights. Uh, Carmen Maria Machado writes um, memoir and fiction. J. Robert Lennon is an, a fantastic sci-fi writer. And they are collaborating on this collection about writers playing video games. They've got Alexander Chi, Larissa Fum, Charlie Jane Anders, uh, Mari Naomi, all of these people talking about who's immersed in The Last of Us uh, during the first summer of the pandemic, who is actually mourning a parent's death with the help of Disco Elysium. Uh, it's about people in the United States and about immigrants as well. Jamil John Kochai remembers being an Afghan-American teenager, killing Afghan insurgents in Call of Duty, which is such a popular game. So this is a, a delightful, fun, informative book. And I think it's one of these books. Yes, of course, people who already play video games, people who are Gen X and millennials, uh, who have sort of seen the transformation of video games are really going to love it. But I think that the older Gen Xers and the younger boomers should take a look at it and under learn to understand why video games are now such an important form of storytelling and such an immersive form of storytelling. So it these are writers who are doing this. This is not like, oh, we're writers. We only look at literary works. Yeah, These it's a good, it reminds people that writers aren't quite as boring as they sometimes see. Absolutely, absolutely. This is they it, actually I, have I, fun. They play video games. Yep. Um, absolutely. I don't know how they have time, but I guess you can always figure out time. Maybe they don't sleep. Finally, I'm just back from <laughs> Italy. Um, and uh, who doesn't want to go to Italy? But if you can't go to Italy, the next best thing is a book by Mary Beard on Emperor of Rome. Uh, Mary's been on the show before. She's in a remarkably entertaining, erudite figure, one of the great scholars in the world. Um, yes. Tell us about Mary Beard's new book, uh, em well, Emperor of Rome. If you haven't read Mary Beard before, pick up SPQR and learn so much more about the Roman Empire because, you know, re regardless of how you feel about Western civilization and patriarchal constructs, the Roman Empire was, is actually remarkable in world history purely for its administration, purely for its bureaucracy. And in this book, Mary Beard, as you mentioned, she's one of the world's foremost scholars. She is not just looking at Rome again. She is looking at why the emperor was such an integral and important figure in that 
administration. And so she talks about all of the things that these emperors did, how they lived, where they slept, who spoke to them, you know, the kinds of things that they cared about and ate, uh, what they owed their positions to, you know, were they someone who had gotten the emperor's throne because someone else had been assassinated. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. If you, you know, watched I, Claudius, you know a little bit about this, but you'll know a lot more about this after you read Emperor of Rome. Um, you know, it's a little bit different. I'd say it's a little bit more focused on you know, general readers than some of Mary Beard's other books. Which is good, isn't it? Well, I think so. I think so. Uh, it, 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 you know, if you're a real, I don't know, Rome head, if you've ever what black oh, if you're a Rome head, you probably right. won't be watching you might, this. Uh... You might say, "Oh, well, this is too easy. I want, you know, more information." But I, I'm assuming, Beth Ann, that it's written with the verve, the the humor, the the, the sort of. The, the physicality that Mary Beard always writes with. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. I mean, uh, verb is such a good word for Mary Beard. I mean, she is one of those scholars who is able to actually speak like a human being rather than speaking in jargon. And that is a rare gift. And she so, is a treasure. If, if we had to cho is. choose Bethan between giving up, all the emperors of Rome or Mary Beard, who would we keep? Oh, I'd probably keep Mary Beard. I thought you might say that. Well, <laughs> as always, uh, Beth Ann Patrick, it's an honor and a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. We're going to do a show, I think, next time, maybe next week on upcoming fiction. So have a great week, Beth Ann, and we'll talk again in a few days. Thanks so much, Andrew. Bye now.